we've got some breaking news out of Sunset Park, Brooklyn. At least five people were shot and a potential explosion occurred on the platform of at least one subway station. Now, police were called to the 36th Street subway station at approximately 8.30 a.m., right in the middle of morning rush hour. The New York Fire Department confirmed that 13 people have been brought to the hospital so far. Officials say they're seeking a man with a gas mask and an orange construction vest. He fled the scene shortly after the chaos began. And he's described in this news article as a five foot five black male, 175, 180 pounds. That's from local ABC uh, source. You know, so much of the early information in situations like this is not reliable. So, and, you know, there's always endless speculation that's totally fact-free. So let's not do any of that. But it's uh, hor horrifying. You're seeing the, uh, looking at the images. Have you seen the images, Kim? It just looks, it looks just awful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, luckily, it looks like uh, they're not reporting any fatalities at right. the moment. So that is good news. It, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens once the people get to the hospital, once they get their treatment. But from the photographs, it looks like the people are conscious. They're sitting up. You know, there's blood. Um, but they they do seem to be not in hopefully critical condition. Hopefully mm -hmm. they can get to the hospital, get treatment and get out. But um, do they have so they know about this guy? Do we know if he's been arrested or are they just looking at footage and they're telling us what he looks like? Yeah, they're just and, and I don't I don't know. Maybe they, they have not if they have footage of him, it's not been released. So I think this is from maybe from witness descriptions, which are very very unreliable so yeah, this could be a totally different person although you know orange vest gas mask is a is a distinctive thing to think yeah. to notice yeah. so they haven't released any footage yet that i can see the governor uh the governor kathy hochel she said that she was briefed on this developing situation first responders on the scene and they're working with the mta to provide updates so you know we'll be staying tuned for those, but uh, ugh, the pictures were bad. Yeah, it seems like a question of not if, but when this will be politicized and how obviously we have new mayor Eric Adams who really came into office with a you know anti-crime mandate talking a lot about right. people's increasing con uh, security concerns on the subway. And there was some question of whether or not more progressive candidates in the race were meaningfully taking on the concerns that are felt by New Yorkers and certainly whether or not they're exaggerated or not, or whether there are other priorities or not, or whether Eric Adams has the right approach to addressing crime in the subways or not. It's hard to believe that this won't become fodder for similar kinds of political activism going forward. So I look forward to learning more about the specifics of how and why this happened. Yeah, I'm right. It, it always it depends, you know, what the specific origins of this depends, which side mm -hmm. gets to say, oh, if only, you know, my enemies weren't in charge blah, right. blah, blah, demonization, et cetera, but... Uh, well, well, Eric Adams did actually uh, amp up the police presence on the subway. He was trying to attract New Yorkers back to riding the subway. Many of them were afraid because of the rising crime rates. Uh, and so, you know, something like this, so this sounds more like a terrorist attack. I mean, I know we're, try we're not trying to right. speculate, but... The, so the, but apparently the explosive, uh, cl the, the claims about an explosion are in dispute. We just put up a tweet saying that there was no explosive device found, so it's not actually clear if there was an explosion. Obviously, people have, people have definitely been shot. We've seen the pictures of that. Right. People have been brought to the hospital, so shooting for sure. Um, you know, people who are not, who haven't been around gunfire don't understand, like, how loud it is. It can easily, you know, if you're not accustomed to hearing it, you can hear gunfire and think, wow, an explosion just went off, and when it was actually just a gun. So right. that's a very, you know, believable thing so, to have people say, oh, there was an explosion, and actually have it, there was not an explosion, just, just gunfire. 
Now, are they are they still reporting that they found undetonated devices? So that is something that they claimed that, you know, that was the early reports coming out that they uh, apparently what the original scene, what had happened was that there was smoke on the subway. Firefighters went down there because of reports of smoke only to find people had been shot. Right. And then they had found some undetonated devices. So where the smoke came from, what are these undetonated devices? Uh, so the, CNN, the CNN says five shot and possible smoke device detonated. Mm. Not an explosive, but a smoke device. Right. But again, I mean, like guns do create, there There could be smoke from gunfire. Um, yeah, the pictures, the pictures did look sort of hazy, but it, I'm yeah. no gun expert. Uh, the mayor is continuing to be briefed on the situation uh, and says that while they're learning more, the New Yorkers should stay away from this area for their safety so that first responders can help mm -hmm. those in need and investigate. Yeah, stay away from there for now. And, you know, we'll let uh, we'll let you know more when we hear more as uh, developing story, obviously. But, you know, uh, thoughts, obviously, well wishes to anyone who was involved in this. Hopefully no casualties and everybody gets the treatment they need. Um, so hoping yeah. for the best and we'll update you more when there's more that we know. Good morning and welcome to Rising. We've got a great show for you, and my co-host today is Brianna Joy Gray. We're happy to have you. <laughs> thank you. It's great to be here again. Yeah, thank you. So here's what's on the agenda for today. John Yadarola and Rachel Bovard will weigh in on BLM's new transparency strategy after concealing a $6 million mansion purchased with charitable funds from the organization. David Waxman breaks down the drop in Bitcoin prices this week and what you could expect to see in the future. But first, the White House is expecting extraordinarily elevated inflation numbers in today's report from the Labor Department and largely blaming the rise on Putin's price hike. The White House Press Secretary Jin Psaki coined the term during a presser yesterday. Let's watch. We expect March CPA, CPI headline inflation to be extraordinarily elevated due to Putin's price hike. And just as an example, since President Putin's military buildup accelerated in January, average gas prices are up more than 80 cents. Most of the increase in, uh, occurred in the month of March, and at times gas prices were more than a dollar above pre-invasion levels. So that roughly 25 percent increase in gas prices will drive tomorrow's inflation reading. And certainly it's not a surprise to us, but we certainly think it will be reflected. However, inflation was at 7.4% in January before the invasion and in February went up to 7.9%. For context, Russia didn't invade until February 24th. So most Americans unsurprisingly aren't buying into the Putin price hike narrative either as the public looks to be much more concerned with rising costs over the war in Ukraine. A recent poll from NBC found 68% of Americans think Biden's priority should be getting inflation under control. Over 20% who think he should work to end the war in Ukraine. And according to a poll from the Kaiser Foundation, 55% of Americans say inflation is the biggest problem in America, while 18% named Ukraine as the biggest issue. And obviously these are related issues. Always when you're trying to like rank issues, what matters most, it's a little bit of a, like what's the science behind that? But clear voters do see a link, I think, between the two, but they're not sold entirely on the idea that oh, everything would be fine. But... We just we have to do this Ukrainian war. So sorry, you have to pay more for everything like that is clearly not persuasive. Yeah, I think the worst case scenario is making American voters believe that you're more interested in a rebranding campaign than actually doing your best to meet the needs of the moment. I think that if you had more confidence in the people's ability to say, hey, some of the stuff is in your control, some of the stuff is out of control, but there was a belief in the institution of government that it was fighting for you and doing the best that it, that it, 
that it could, these individual numbers and swings wouldn't matter as much. But when the most visible response that people are perceiving is the idea that we're going to have some alliterative name like Putin's price hike that's being pushed on them instead of something more substantive, it doesn't really matter what you're due on an underlying basis. People are going to lose confidence and faith in the institution. Yeah, it sounds so like focus group tested, yes. sort of. But it probably was focus group yes. tested. Or it was tested by, like, I don't know, Jen Psaki and friends. They're like, ooh, that sounds really good. Go with that. A hundred percent. She's so checked out. She, like, she's leaving. She, uh, every problem can't be solved by alliteration and putting things in, like, groups of threes. It's just, <laughs> that doesn't work outside of your high school English class. Darn it. Well, that's my strategy. I got nothing else. So later in the briefing, Psaki pushed for Congress to pass the administration's proposals on child care, other areas that would reduce the rising costs for families. It is a reminder to us, to uh, our, our allies on the Hill, and hopefully to many of the American people that we need to do more to reduce costs for the American people. Uh, we have, of course, uh, legislation that could do exactly that, cut the cost of child care, of health care, of elder care. These all have enormous impacts on people's budgets, uh, on when they're you know, doing those calculations at their kitchen table. And, and certainly this data will be a reminder of uh, the, uh, the need to do something and take additional steps. It's all about the kitchen table. But Saki's push comes after Biden's Build Back Better plan has actually completely collapsed in Congress. And as the White House begins new strategies to get the bills passed, um, hard to have any faith that anything will come of this. But maybe you know more than I do. Look. The Biden administration has been playing this blame game for a while, and they've made the culprits pretty clear. Their articulation, their theory of the case is that it's mansion and cinema, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Now, Politico reported out last year that, of course, it's many more people than mansion and cinema that are, that are actually behind this. That there are any number of Democrats, in, in addition to all of the Republicans, of course, who oppose this agenda. But instead of being able to talk plainly about that and why it is that there's so many electeds in Congress who are so widely out of step with what their constituents want and opening the open secrets tab and just reading down the list of who's taking donations from whom, they decided to argue for a year now that nothing could be done because of mansion and cinema. And this is all about mansion and cinema. So how are people supposed to have confidence that anything is going to be any different when nothing has changed with mansion and cinema? There's been no conversation about substantively what could move them at any point in this game. Now we're going to have these restarted conversations about can we pass this, that, and the other? What can Joe Biden do? What can he offer? Because it's midterm season and he knows he has to give something to Democratic voters who are overwhelmingly disaffected and over the whole thing. And so we're going to have these conversations, but it just increasingly makes people feel as though everything that's coming out of the administration's mouth is a lie, especially when there are a number of things that could be done still by executive order to actually put money in people's pockets. Yeah, it just, it seems like there's going to be very low motivation on the Democratic side following this train wreck of a first term. He made his bed, <laughs> and now we're, we're seeing how comfortable it is. Yeah. Well, on the subject of Ukraine, atro atrocities continue to take place, this time especially in Bukha, where their Russian forces are taking particular aim at civilians. The New York Times reports, soldiers tortured, raped, and executed civilians in basements or backyards. Yeah, it's... Grizzly, Grizzly reporting, and also reports from Ukraine's neo-Nazi group, the Azov Battalion, which alleged that Russia is using chemical weapons against Ukrainian defenders in Mariupol. Newsweek has not been able to confirm the report independently. You know, and as always, we have to, you know, clarify that we don't. You know, I haven't personally reported on this or looked mm -hmm. at it. It's it's so hard to know exactly what the situation is, and uh, you know, the war is an atrocity unto itself. Yeah. So like, it's horrible regardless of the particulars of what's going on. 
But, uh, but yeah, this, I read that New York Times story, and it was just, it was awful. It was describing, like, rape and murder and mutilation and, you know, the, digging up the bodies and finding out what had happened to them is just horrible. Yeah, it's very grim, and it's, it will be interesting to see what effect this has on the voting public, especially given the polls that you read earlier. There was this interesting mm-hmm. tension between, I think, the average person's moral disgust with these kinds of tragedies and a very humanitarian and sincere desire to want to help, but also a frustration that so right. many atrocities, obviously of a different scale in nature, continue all over the world and domestically at home. And I think a lot of voters are frustrated to see $30 billion added to a defense budget, all of the spending kind of happening without any conversations about how you pay for it, when the domestic agenda, as we just discussed, is so dead in the water. Well, and also helping means also more deaths, right? It means people right. fight, maybe justifiably fighting back, but right. it's not like, how do we, we all want to bring this to a peaceful resolution like now. Yeah. And uh, it's frustrating that it doesn't, maybe it's coming, maybe it's, you know, maybe they're working something out, we don't know exactly, uh, but it's just, it's awful. It's a, it's a real <laughs> palpable reminder of like how awful war is. Which yeah. Is something we've yeah. had the luxury of not thinking about, I guess, very much, even though we should have well. been thinking about it, we're plenty <laughs> responsible for it. We're not, yes. no, no, it's absolutely going on, but we're yeah. not in the headlines, people not paying as much attention to, war has again been like the headline story for the last three months. Uh, it should, you know, I mean, it should have been the headline story the whole time we were, you know, aggressively destroying civilizations in the yeah, Middle East. But I think there are some people who are skeptical about why it is the headline story now versus before, and that may right. or may not be fair. But regardless of how organic a, uh, an outbreak is, right. uh, an outbreak of violence is, or an invasion is, you know, I think there is still a risk that conflicts get weaponized for political ends. And it's difficult to have that conversation while still having a foot firmly rooted and wanting to have a humanistic approach to the reality of human suffering. And that's what makes this conversation, I think, very difficult in some of the factions that have evolved, uh, emerged around what to think about this particular crisis. And I hope we can continue to clarify and offer some perspective right. on that well, going you, forward. You see that in the media coverage, which is right essential. There should be media coverage. But then also the, you know, the reporters um, heckling sock. Well, yeah. why, why, ha- why isn't World War III on the table? Why yeah. haven't we, you know, how many times they say we're not going to do a no-fly zone? Yeah. Like, but would you do a no-fly zone if this line was crossed? So yeah. they can get her in a, aha, that line has been crossed. Yeah. We're, don't you agree? We're in World War III already. It's just, like, weird. It's just, it's baffling that they want that. It is, it is baffling and terrifying. And terrifying and, and wrong and bad. And wrong and bad. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, we'll tell you all what's on our radars coming up next, so stick around. Rihanna, what's on your radar? Well, it's midterm election season, and you know what that means. It's time for Democrats to find someone to blame for their failures. Joe Biden came into power claiming that he had a mandate. He was going to do what Trump wouldn't. In COVID, pass meaningful criminal justice reform, dish out $2,000 checks, cancel at least $10,000 of student debt, and even cure cancer. I promise you, uh, if I'm elected president, you're going to see the single most important thing that changes in America is we're going to cure cancer. Uh, you think I'm... But that's another issue. Needless to say, cancer remains 
tragically uncured, and other self-imposed goals like canceling student debt, dispersing $2,000 checks, passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act by the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder, and canceling at least $10,000 of student debt remain unaccomplished. During the 2020 campaign, when America was at 220,000 COVID deaths, Biden said of Trump that anyone who is responsible for that many deaths should not remain as president of the United States. At the time, America was at 220,000 COVID deaths, and now it's at a million. Questions about student debt cancellation from the press box are met with condescension from Jen Psaki, who dishonestly offers that if Congress were to send a student debt cancellation bill to Biden's desk, he would sign it, even though she knows that the same executive authority he and Trump have relied on to suspend student debt payments could be used to cancel student debt altogether without the participation of Congress. And of course, $2,000 checks immediately became $1,400 checks. According to a recent CBS poll, Biden's approval ratings are at a new low. He's getting low marks for handling inflation, and although many high costs are the result of COVID-related supply chain issues and corporate price gouging, his attempt to brand the issue as the Putin price hike is unlikely to endear him to anyone who doesn't already have a Biden-Harris sticker sign in the window of their brownstone. But establishment Democrats seem to see no relationship between the party's failure to meet the moment and Biden's flagging poll numbers. Instead of using his executive authority to deliver on his promises to the American people by, for example, canceling student debt or expanding Medicare to cover all citizens in response to the COVID crisis, both actions within his power. According to a new book by New York Times reporters Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns, set to be released this May, Pelosi privately blames progressives for nearly costing the Democrats the House, saying Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Pramila Jayapal were fighting to be, quote, Queen B. Quote, in a few strictly confidential conversations, she pointed a finger leftward. Pelosi told one senior lawmaker that Democrats had alienated Asian and Hispanic immigrants with loose talk of socialism. According to a review of the book, in some of the same communities, the Italian Catholic speaker said Democrats had not been careful enough about the way they spoke about abortion among new Americans who were devout people of faith. Now, left punching by corporate Democrats is nothing new. Although Nancy Pelosi is the subject of more than one third of conservative attack ads, her policies are never to blame for the fr frustrations with the party. We live in a mind boggling reality where Nancy Pelosi can publicly defend Congress members who are often privy to insider information, participating in stock trading while accusing socialism of being at the root of low poll numbers. Now, I'm old enough to remember back in November 2020 when Representative Jim Clyburn warned that if, quote, we are going to run on Medicare for all, defund the police, socialize medicine, we're not going to win the upcoming runoff Senate contest in Georgia. Representative Kurt Schrader of the conservative Blue Dog Coalition warned that, quote, when we see the far left that gets all the news media attention, they get scared. This playing footies with socialism is not going to win over most of America, agreed Representative Stephanie Murphy, co-chair of the Blue Dogs. There's no amount of lipstick that can cover up the fact that these far left ideas are costing us raises. But Medicare for All won on the ballot in 2020, including in some conservative swing districts. As Bronco Markovic reported at the time, Matt Cartwright won his election in that year by 3.4 points in Pennsylvania's 8th district, which has been represented by a Republican for 14 of the last 20 years and has voted for Obama twice before voting for Trump in 2016. He did this despite not just co-sponsoring Medicare for All, but going on Fox News to make the case for it. 
Likewise, after winning a 2018 special election for an open seat in Pennsylvania's 7th District, Susan Wilde won re-election to the seat for the second time in a district whose Republican tilting voting patterns are nearly identical to Pennsylvania's 8th. She won in spite of being on the receiving end of exactly the kind of GOP attacks that other Democrat supporters of Medicare for All have been subjected to. So despite the evidence, Democratic strategists are now arguing that the way to win is to shift right. Again, as Leah Hunt Hendricks noted in a recent op-ed for Politico, this is a mistake. She wrote, some Democrats and like-minded commentators have urged the party to veer to the right. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has urged lawmakers to denounce amnesty for immigrants and tout their support for police. State columnist Jordan Weissman suggested that maybe Democrats need to offer some serious concessions on culture war issues. And political scientist Roy Texiera recently wrote, all the political signals are screaming, Democrats must move to the center. But Leah argues persuasively, that's the wrong move. This is a terrible approach, not just morally, but politically. The idea that criticizing people whose energy and dedication helps power Democratic victories will somehow yield political benefits for Democrats is both wrong and self-defeating. Any successful strategy must unify all elements of the party's coalition. Notably, Democrats are not just suffering from low approval ratings among independents, they are also registering low ratings among key elements of the base, such as young people and people of color. They face a double-digit enthusiasm gap compared to Republicans. Punching down at core constituencies within the party is virtually guaranteed to depress turnout and lead to deep losses in November. In fact, many swing district Democrats tried a strategy of promoting their centrist bona fides above all else in 2020, and it led to major losses. Democrats spend three times more on television ads touting bipartisanship than Republicans, and to what effect? Republicans go on the offense, tagging words like extremist and radical. And those tags stick because Democrats refuse to tell an affirmative story about who they are. Leah rightly identifies a core truth. When Republicans paint Democrats as too woke, what really lands is the idea that they are elite, out of touch with the core needs of Americans. The core needs Biden said he would address when he ran for office, but which he has largely failed to follow through on. Specifically, Leah argues, Democrats should focus on issues that deliver concrete benefits to working Americans and which motivate their voters to show up to the polls. Canceling student debt would disproportionately benefit Americans at the lower ends of the economic scale, while, while meanwhile failing to act will likely lead to a fall off in turnout, according to a recent poll. 40%, 40% of black voters and 30% of all Democratic voters say they might stay home in 2022 without debt cancellation. Now, student debt cancellation can be done by executive order. Biden can't use Mansion and Cinema as an excuse for this one. So it's unclear why Nancy Pelosi wouldn't take this route to growing enthusiasm among the base rather than attacking them for wanting something in exchange for their vote. Maybe it has something to do with being lobbied by billionaire, close family friends, and consistent donors to oppose student debt cancellation as reported by The Intercept last year. But one thing is clear. Left punching isn't going to go away as long as corporate Democrats need an excuse for their own failures. And as long as it happens, the left needs to learn to effectively punch back. True progressives need to name the enemy to promote a genuine progressive populism. The battle isn't left-right, it's top-down. And it's time for working people to reject parties that want to throw them and their interests under the bus and start punching up. 
Now, Robbie, I know this is a this is an old battle cry of mine, and you probably feel differently about the well, culture war aspect of this, at least. I don't feel entirely differently. I so I never make I try never ever again in my life to make the mistake of thinking the things I like and mm-hmm. think are correct policies are necessarily popular. Probably some of the things I think are correct po- policies are popular. Many of them are not, and the same goes for every other political coalition and anyone trying. It, it's always fun to go. Yes, my ideas are winning. Everyone loves them. If only they enacted them, everything would be great. And it might be true policy-wise, but not true political-wise. So with the things you're talking about, I do think, even though you know, Medicare for all type policies are not exactly my favorite thing, they are clearly popular. Mm. Uh, you should not call them socialism, though, because socialism is not popular. What? Many of the ideas that we could argue are socialist are popular, if not described as socialism, because people associate correctly, in my view, socialism <laughs> with political repression and like economic collapse, Look, I, I think so that's you just fine. don't call it socialism. I don't care if you call it socialism or not, but regardless, anything a Democrat does, even a corporate Democrat does, is going to get called socialism, and that's what's so well, that's frustrating. Yeah. You see these ads with Nancy Pelosi in them, right. calling Nancy Pelosi a socialist, and yet somehow the response is not to say, well, she's being called out for being an elitist, she's being called out for being corrupt, let's change those things about the Democratic Party. It's to say, let's take the few good things that the Democrats are running on that are are, in fact, genuinely and sincerely popular and accuse progressives of, of hurting the party for actually pushing those things. And let's also absolve Joe Biden of his responsibility for acting on those things that he actually can do in his singular executive authority to help Americans feel better in the context of this ongoing economic crisis. Yeah. Do them, just don't call them socialists. It would honestly be my advice. On that stuff, on the culture war, I mean, we'll have to see. I think... I think uh, Democrats are going to have to come up with a, a, a better or more satisfying strategy than maybe than the one you outlined there, because it's yeah. just a, it's... I mean, I don't think that they should fight it. I'm not sure, I, I'm not sure what they can do, frankly. It's like the, I think you have to talk about something else. I think going else. tit for tat about this is what CRT means, no, this is what CRT right. means, and no, it's not actually taught in school, and no, it's taught in law schools, yada, yada, yada. Like, I can have substantive mm-hmm. beliefs and opinions about all of that, but my communications advice to people would be to talk about something that people care more about instead of always being tricked Mm -hmm. into coming and fighting on the turf that is going to be more advantageous to the right. There is a reason why conservatives benefit from talking about culture war things because they are more popular than the underlying policies that the the conservatives are offering right now. That doesn't have to be true for the left unless you ignore those things that are actually Progressive but, policies. True, but they're popular to stomach, uh, some extent. They're things conservatives want to talk about because they realize how much like people are frustrated about these things. Like, there's clearly there is an appetite among the public for uh, for the conservative complaint of these things. There is an appetite, but I recommend that. Democrats and progressives not feed the beast. <laughs> Regardless, I'm looking forward to your Rob, uh, your radar next, Robbie. Thank you. <laughs> hey, Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, spring has finally sprung in the nation's capital, and D.C.'s political elites are ready at long last to party. The White House Correspondents' Weekend is coming up, of course, at the end of the month. But why wait? A slew of top cabinet officials attended something called the annual Gridiron Dinner two weekends ago, which was held for the first time since 2019. 
72 people caught COVID-19 at the dinner. That includes Attorney General Merrick Garland, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, Senator Susan Collins, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, and Representative Adam Schiff, to name just a few. A super spreader event, if ever there was one. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tested positive recently as well, just two days after she attended a crowded event at the White House with President Joe Biden and former President Barack Obama. According to the College Fix, Pelosi recently posed for a photo with Georgetown University President John DeGioia, who himself is now positive for COVID-19. Now, some students at Georgetown aren't thrilled with their president, who's clearly enjoying himself, massless, out and about, but has now brought back the campus's mask mandate after getting rid of it for just a month ago. That's right, Georgetown has enjoyed about three weeks optional masking in total. So the magazine Mother Jones says that recent cases of high-profile individuals contracting COVID and super spreader events like the Gridiron Club, quote, shows that we can't just go back to normal. But what it actually shows is that you can't just go back to normal. Political elites, on the other hand, well, they're absolutely going back to normal. If cases rise, they'll punish you. Don't expect them to make any sacrifices themselves. For them, it's business as usual. For you, Maybe another mask mandate, maybe some other restrictions. Philadelphia has decided, by the way, the city to bring back its indoor mask mandate because of rising case counts. And I mentioned uh, Georgetown just a minute ago, but also American University, George Washington here in D.C. doing the same thing. Now, some mandates that should have gone away for good, proving to be quite stubborn. The federal mandate requiring passengers and personnel to wear masks on airplanes, trains and buses is set to expire on April 18th. But federal health officials are giving every indication that they are willing to extend it once again. This is a decision that the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, is going to make. That's what Ashish K. Jha, the White House's COVID-19 response director, told the Today Show on Monday. I know the CDC is working to develop a scientific framework, he said. When host Savannah Guthrie pressed Jha to clarify whether extending the mask mandate was a real possibility, he said, quote, well, it's absolutely on the table. Let's watch that. Hey, look, this is a CDC decision, uh, and uh, I think it is absolutely on the table. And, and Dr. Walensky is going to make uh, her decision based on, on the framework that the CDC scientists create, and, and we'll make a decision uh, collectively based on that. Technically, the policy actually falls under the jurisdiction of the Transportation Security Administration, the TSA, not actually the CDC. They're not responsible for travel policy or the White House. But the TSA, like most other COVID-19 compliant authorities, defers almost entirely to CDC guidance. The CDCs are our new masters. In practice, the power to compel masking belongs to Walensky, who has taken an extremely cautious approach to easing mandates in a variety of circumstances. But the policy of forced masking on airplanes actually runs counter to what industry professionals and experts say is appropriate. The CEOs of several major airlines have testified before Congress that the air quality on airplanes is better than the air quality in the ICU. So they think it would be extremely safe to let passengers make their own decisions about whether to wear a mask. It is not likely that COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths would surge as a result. Unfortunately, the responsibility for making this determination does not rest with the individual traveler, even the individual airline. It largely rests with Walensky. This means that even though hospitalizations and deaths remain steady as cases rise, extreme risk aversion will likely continue to be the law of the land. For many families with young children, the practical implication of that policy is they cannot travel by airplane at all, since it's very difficult to force small children to wear their masks for entire flights. Masks are not a cost-free intervention for parents in this circumstance. Whatever benefits the CDC thinks this policy yields should be weighed against the very real downsides. They are real. Now, at a time when occasional upticks in cases following new waves and more infectious strains of COVID do not produce appreciably more hospitalizations and deaths, 
one might be forgiven for thinking that it would be acceptable to let onerous restrictions expire. But not for the elites. For them, it's parties and business as usual. For you, sorry, you need to mask your toddler if you like to travel cross-country. That's just what you have to do. Now, there's no greater avatar of this hypocrisy than Vice President Kamala Harris. Proudly went maskless in photo ops last week. Let's watch how Jen Psaki tried to spin this. Question. You said on Friday that um, the vice president was masked indoors all day, but the White House tweeted a video showing her standing over the president without a mask on. Can you explain what happened there? Well, I would say that the vice president and the president and all of us abide by what the CDC protocols are. It was an emotional day. It was a historic day. And there were moments when she was not wearing a mask inside, including in a photo. But she was wearing it 99.9% of the time. She's only human. She was emotional. That's the excuse. That's the best they can do. Aren't we all? Aren't we human? Are we all emotional? But why don't we get a pass? Only the government officials, they're the only ones who deserve this right, according to them. So it just frustrates me to no end. I guess it always will that they're, they're not following these rules. These rules are just for everyone else over and over again. How many times do they have to demonstrate that the rules are just for you before people like rise up in French Revolution style. Not that I'm advocating that. Don't do it. Very against the French Revolution. But. Look, I, I think there's no credible argument against your very good point that this is a policy that's not being uniformly applied across the board. I mean, we could all remember the Gavin Newsom moment where he was sitting dining in the thick of the COVID outbreak. Uh, we remember recently the State of the Union that seemed like a kind of theater of masklessness when, of course, everyone involved, all of the And they're old, old people. They're old. People, they're old. They're old people, but they were also were all tested sure. and had access Fine. to, you know, the best test immediately before going into the room. So there was this kind of misrepresentation representation of safety level to try to give a veneer that everything was okay. So I'm totally with you on how unfair it is to expect, you know, regular people to adhere to one standard and elites to adhere to another standard. But I'm curious whether you think that the response should be to hold elites to the same standard of accountability rather than lower the masking standards for everybody else. That. <laughs> That's what it should be. No masking for anyone. And I don't care if you're not masked as long as you are not an advocate of these policies, is my general response. Do we know anything about what my masking hypothetically in a plain environment does in terms of preventing you from getting COVID? Or is your own mask sufficient safety protection? From what I, the CDC has now recognized, as we can only go through them, has recognized the benefits of one-way masking, that if you want to protect yourself and you wear a very, one of the very sturdy masks, mm -hmm. you have a great deal of additional protection in it, in addition to vaccination, which is the main th thing you can do for, for protection from mm -hmm. s severe disease, and that that's pretty good. Yeah, can we, could we bring down cases probably somewhat even more, maybe a little bit, maybe a little mm -hmm. bit more than a little bit, if we made people, you know, mask themselves to the point of not being able to breathe, sure. But like, <laughs> but why? But every, so they're going to have the White House Correspondents Dinner Weekend. Mm -hmm. They're going to have tons of parties. Mm -hmm. Like, we know people are going to catch COVID. Mm -hmm. the cases are going to rise. So if your view is that we must do whatever it takes to bring down cases, which is not a view that I have. But if that is your view, I don't know how these things can go forward. But they're going to do them. Like, they're absolutely going to do them. And then maybe D.C. might have some uptick in cases as a result. And then what? Then they're going to mask schools again because they did this? It's just, it's, it seems really morally fraught. Yeah, look, I was in actually Philadelphia last weekend. And I observed some spaces where I definitely felt like, 
10 out of 10, like statistically someone in this room has COVID yeah. and very few people in this room are wearing masks. And I do think that there is this weird kind of social pressure against wearing masks at this point, even in very liberal environments, because if no one else is doing it, it makes you seem like kind of an alarmist and yeah. insane. Yeah. But also <laughs> the logical part of my brain said, statistically, 100% someone in this room has COVID and a lot more people are getting it. So uh, I hope that the CDC can boost its credibility by not you know, turning a blind eye to these kind of class-based inequities and also the inconsistency with a lot of the advice that they've been giving out recently. Good point. All right, well, the rising panel will join us next, so stick around. Black Lives Matter Global Network Fund has officially apologized after reporting from Sean Kevin Campbell revealed the group used donations to purchase a $6 million luxury Southern California creator's house in the fall of 2020. They said, quote, we know narratives like this cause harm to organizers doing brilliant work across the country, and these reports do not reflect the totality of the movement. We apologize for the distress this has caused our supporters and those who work in service of Black liberation daily. The BLM Global Network also pledged to, quote, increase transparency, but have not disclosed how they plan to do this. Previous reporting from New York Post from all the way back in April 2021 followed several other questionable real estate purchases from then-executive director Patrice Kilore. However, that reporting didn't pick up as much mainstream traction, in part because Facebook banned content about the Post story after apparently being lobbied to do so by BLM Global Network members themselves. We've got a lot to dig into here. Joined by host of The Damage Report and the Young of the Young Turks, John Aydarola, and policy director at the Conservative Partnership Institute, Rachel Bovard, who contributed to some of the reporting herself. Welcome to you both. Good morning. So, you know, Rachel, uh, talk to us a little bit about this story. Uh, this seems to be another case of a really bad in addition to everything else going on with it, a really bad content moderation decision on the part of Facebook. Yeah, when it comes to suppression of circulation of these stories, you know, as you pointed out, it goes back all the way a year ago when the New York Post simply reported on the purchases of personal purchases of Patrice Kalor of four different homes totaling around $3.2 million. They did so in a way that sort of reflects how you'd report on any sort of public figure or celebrity home purchase. There was no personal data listed. It was just pulled from public record. Obviously, they took a slant on it and said, you know, this is interesting because this woman runs a nonprofit. You know, what is she doing? But it turned out, you know, once the story was suppressed, nobody knew why. Meta or Facebook, right, said, well, it's because it violates our personal information uh, policy. There's, there's, you know, privacy concerns. They later categorized it as abusive. And up to this day, you still cannot share the story on Facebook. But now, because of reporting in New York Magazine, we know that that wasn't an independent decision by Facebook. It was because of active law being by the BLM group itself, which I think is a disturbing sort of collusion that goes to narrative control that we talk about a lot on this program, uh, especially on a platform like Facebook, where people do, you know, unfortunately or fortunately get a lot of their news from. Yeah. And, and John, it seems to me that it's not just the uh, kind of uh, the banning angle, the, the tech angle, but also that there's a kind of um, expectation that stories like this are being elevated in bad faith when you're coming from a left perspective where there have been all of these back and forths about, you know, did, does Haas and Piker deserve to buy a house or to have this kind of money? And there was a knee jerk kind of reaction to this that said, OK, well, I don't want to feed into right-wing tropes. How do you address something like this, which has been revealed to be meritorious? It obviously implicates all of these 
dollars given to a worthy cause in good faith. How do you approach stories like this going forward coming from a progressive perspective? I mean, I definitely, I think that that's a, that's a great thing to constantly have in the back of your mind when you're managing a platform. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your energy? You only have so many minutes per day. Uh, BLM is a major organization. Uh, how they spend their money, especially when the money goes into the millions of dollars, is clearly of public interest. So you should definitely report on it. Obviously, what you say about it, how much you choose to focus on it needs to be in line with the the seriousness of the story. Um, and by the way, if there's additional angles that arise, for instance, if a particular news piece about it is being banned, then that might also generate more news. It's sort of the, what is it, the Barbara Streisand effect? Mm. Maybe I'm mm -hmm. messing that up, but- No, that's right, uh, that's it. Exactly. Now, of course, bear in mind that there is a difference between one source being banned and a topic being banned. Uh, it might well be that that post story still can't be shared, but I just searched recently and there is no absence uh, in the immediate last few weeks or back in 2021 of uh, other news articles about this, discussion of this, videos being posted about this. There's dozens and dozens and dozens. But that said, even if just one major outlet's reporting on it is being banned, I think uh, a lot of people already have significant concerns about the way that Mark Zuckerberg and Meta or whatever they want to call themselves these days, how they choose to uh, decide what gets to be talked about and what doesn't. I would love to see more oversight on that. Well, and, and you know, the Barbara Streisand effect famously was about Barbara Streisand's efforts to suppress her giant mansion mm -hmm. from being covered uh, in the press. But John, I also wanted to ask you, what do you make of the, de the defense and I, I guess the genuine strategy from some of the BLM uh, founders that, that significant resources should be invested or spent in a kind of like hype house and like creating a social mm -hmm. media brand as well? Like, is that... Is that where left-wing progressive activism is headed, that that's, the, that's what we're doing with all this money? Uh, well, I've always personally wanted to own my own hype house. Thus far, <laughs> my efforts in that direction have been stymied uh, by the market. Uh, I, don't, I don't understand that philosophy necessarily, but then I don't have a massive social media following. Maybe I'm behind the times. Maybe I should get into that. Uh, I don't think that it represents the desires of the membership or you know, membership, quote unquote, people who might feel ideologically or policy uh, overlap with BLM as a philosophy, maybe not with the individual founders, because, of course, the actions of the founders don't even represent the rest of those who work officially for BLM, let alone the people who might agree with it. And one would be able to expect a minimal bar, an understanding that when and if and when this comes out, it's going to look really bad and it's going to undercut the other efforts that many people that have no input on this sort of decision have been making directly or indirectly linked to BLM and cities throughout America for literally years. It was an incredibly boneheaded move. Yeah, and we should be clear about this. This is a Hype House purchased by the BLM National Organization, not BLM as a generalized political identification right. that many people subscribe to. I mean, I was able to have the author of this article, the series of articles in New York Magazine on my show recently, and he talked about the fact that this is, we're talking about a bigger problem. This is $90 million that was collected in the summer of 2020, 60 million of which has gone largely unaccounted for. And this is a substantive issue for those people who really do support the cause and don't believe that a, a hype house is the best way to spend the money. And to that point, he even mentions in the article that there's no content 
even if this is a, a hype house, <laughs> there's no content that's been produced. And they've had this house now for, what, a, a year? Uh, so it really does undermine the, the, the broader case. But I want to ask you, Rachel, you know, it seems to me that what's happening with the censorship is that it doesn't keep the issue from being discussed. It just balkanizes the kinds of conversations that are happening on, a, on, on the basis of people's political perspectives. So it seems like people on the broad left, liberals, don't even seem to know that there are these legitimate concerns and critiques that are being made mm -hmm. on the right. Is that your experience? Uh, you know, I think that's right. And I think it's also, you know, to the point that there were no shortage of stories about this when it was taking place. Well, mm. then why was the New York Post singled out for, for this mm. particular story? And if you go read it, it, it really is inoffensive. It, it's more like, mm -hmm. you know, how you report on any celebrity home purchase. Right. But I think, you know, more broadly, it speaks to the efforts of, you know, BLM as as a broader organization to suppress and critique stories, um, you know, that are critical of them. And that, I think, you know, really sort of goes to the point that they're trying to sort of massage any critique of them more broadly, because as you point out, the story isn't necessarily about the home purchases. That's sort of the tip of the iceberg about what is actually going on here with all of these funds. Uh, and it's not just the New York Magazine raising questions, not just the New York Post. It was the California Attorney General saying, guys, you haven't even filed your 990, which is sort of mm -hmm. the basic form of accountability for a nonprofit. So it's almost, you know, they're, they're two separate issues, but they're part of the same issue, which is distraction from the actual story, which is what is actually going on with these funds? Are they being used properly? And to this day, I think, you know, BLM really can't point to what they've actually done with this money in mm -hmm. that is the real crux of the issue. It's not just the home purchase. That's sort of symptomatic well, of, the, of the larger issue. Well, and Rachel, it's the easy access that some in the progressive side have to the, the, the easy access they have to the censorship option because they know people at these companies. I mean, the New York Post's you know, long history experience with social media censorship uh, with the Hunter Biden story, it, my, my understanding of that situation being that essentially because Facebook and Twitter are st disproportionately staffed by Democrats or people who used to work in the administration. They see this damaging story and, you know, they jumped into almost almost un subconsciously into, you know, damage control, or protect the party. And I, it, this is not quite that, but it also shows the the ease of access. People who want to to have stories that protect Democrats or liberals or whatever have to the have to the censors. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you're not doing a very good job of convincing the right there is no conspiracy here right. <laughs> when when it just does, it really does. You have stories like this that really feel like, okay, they can just pick up the phone and get critiques of them quashed. You know, when people on the right point this out and they're called conspiracy theories, you know, conspiracy theorists and lunatics uh, for saying for saying what's transparently obvious, at least in this case, we know this happened. And so, yeah, you know, I think it's an ideological concentration, you know, between progressive left on one hand, a lot of the same ideological balance that, that staffs a lot of these companies because they're primarily staffed from the Bay Area. And, you know, of course, whether there's nefarious intent or not, when you all have the same worldview, of course, you're going to get outcomes like this. And I think that's a lot, you know, of what the right is pointing to uh, in occasions like this. Well, it's also worth noting that the author, Sean Campbell, kind of perceived it to be a miracle that he was able to publish this at all. And I think the fact that he himself is black and made his story and his take 
be perceived in good faith in a way that perhaps the Post story and other stories weren't. And the fact that the editor-in-chief, I believe, at New York Magazine is also a black woman, I think probably made them feel like they had more space to talk about these kinds of issues than folks who might otherwise be accused of attacking BLM unfairly. I don't know, John, have you experienced in your reporting that kind of wrestling of almost people trying to be harder on their own um, or, or having to use kind of identity or some other kinds of metric to free up the ability to cover the kinds of stories that don't necessarily fit in with a broader progressive narrative? Uh, yeah, look, I think you can find instances the, like that across a, a lot of different areas. Obviously, here at the Young Turks, I mean, one of the reasons we generated the viewership early on that we did was that we were willing to and uh, eager to criticize our own side, even writ large, not just ideological, but back during the Obama years, providing critical coverage that in many cases was absent on more mainstream status quo uh, media sources. So look, I, I think that that can be a useful tool. Again, I would say, let's be clear about the sort of censorship that is going on. And not because I have any desire to protect Mark Zuckerberg or Facebook. If I could press a button right now and separate Facebook into a hundred different pieces and yeet each one in the middle of a different star, I'd do it. But the censorship <laughs> that's going on is that this particular story from this particular source appears to have been suppressed, potentially. Discussion of it on Facebook was not. You can find Bill O'Reilly and mm -hmm. Megyn Kelly and Ben Shapiro and Seb Gorka and all of those discussing this story. So uh, particular censorship still bad. If we want to uh, lobby for more oversight over Facebook as this massive platform that has an outsized influence on uh, political discourse, I am all for that. But we need to understand the sort of censorship that's going yeah. on before we tackle it. No, I, I, I do agree with that, right? They suppress, and that was true actually even of the Hunter Biden story. Like they suppressed the actual story, but then the next hundred stories are stories about the suppression that actually make it, you know, make the story look more, or you know, why are they trying to stop you from reading it? That kind of thing. Uh, well, we got to run. Rachel, John, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. And we'll have more Rising right after this. The Solana Hacker House's hackathon held in Miami over the weekend came to a halt after a bomb threat forced an evacuation of the cryptocurrency extravaganza event. Miami Police Department and a bomb squad responded following a, quote, credible security threat at the five-day Bitcoin conference. High-profile names like Andrew Yang, PayPal's Peter Thiel, and Serena Williams were among the attendees at the cryptocurrency event meant to educate about the blockchain world. Upon arriving, officials found no such credible threat, and the conference was clear to continue. Here to talk about this weekend's crypto chaos, and more importantly, the future of this booming Bitcoin and crypto craze is David Waxman, CEO at Waxman, an expert on blockchain. Welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So help us understand what exactly happened this weekend and what effect, if any, it has had on the popularity of this so-called crypto craze. Well, I'd say the, uh, let's call it Solana Hackathon bomb threat is just the end of what was a pretty wild week in Miami as more than 25,000 people flocked all over Miami Beach to learn about Bitcoin. You saw every rented Lamborghini south of mm. Naples, Florida, right? Line up, uh, mostly the orange ones, uh, and out came Bitcoin investors who had made a lot of money by betting early on Bitcoin. Uh, it was a pretty crazy week. And of course, that just capped it off. Is there anything left for those people who didn't invest early? What are the prospects now for those who are just getting interested? Well, I think one of the things we learned this past week is that Bitcoin is really at the early innings. One of the fun things about the conference when I was there 
was meeting all the people who just for the first time were learning about digital assets. Turns out that the Bitcoin bull, which premiered in front of the Miami Beach Convention Center uh, and popularized by Mayor Suarez, was basically a symbol for people, an invitation for them to come in and learn more about digital assets. Um, many companies are today advertising. We saw four different Super Bowl ads this year uh, focusing on buying Bitcoin. And the conference was basically just an illustration of this is now mainstream. A recent poll came out showing that more than half of Americans have a pretty good understanding of cryptocurrencies. And that for, uh, portends that there's probably going to be a lot of more purchasing in the future. Yeah, it, it certainly is an interesting moment for Bitcoin. And you have uh, Bitcoin, I think, has long been associated with uh, some uh, sort of non-establishment or anti-establishment causes and figures, libertarianism, Andrew Yang was there, et cetera. Uh, I, and I've noticed a lot more conversation from mainstream uh, political figures warning about Bitcoin. Uh, Hillary Clinton, Elizabeth Warren, uh, both very alarmed about you know, what this is going to do to, uh, to financial security, et cetera. Uh, you know what? What do you think is the next? Uh, you know the next conversation about Bitcoin because it, it is going mainstream uh, to some degree. I agree with you, but that's also going to you know provoke this reaction from the countervailing sort of establishment uh, uh, forces who you know fear and hate all new technology or you know, think that this is going to hurt them or it's scary. And we're, you know we're going to increasingly hear about that. I feel uh, you, you know what do you think is happening? Well, we've certainly seen that more Republicans tend to support crypto and Bitcoin than do Democrats, although a good section of the blockchain caucus on the Hill actually turns out to be um, Democrat-led, which I think is, is, is fascinating. What we are seeing, however, is that younger representatives tend to be those who support digital assets, and the older crowd, um, including Elizabeth Warren, are quite against it. So what I think is the conversation as this becomes more and more mainstream, it's certainly going to turn more towards potential regulation, new types of policies that, of course, um, need to be uh, potentially drawn up and passed. And of course, all the various different agencies um, and uh, the different bureaus underneath the Biden administration, they're taking a look at Bitcoin, digital assets and central bank digital currencies, uh, and they're investigating that right now. Well, this weekend's brief disruption in Miami isn't slowing Bitcoin down. In fact, according to Forbes, rising gold prices could cause the currency to reach a million dollars coin. Again, what does this mean for the average person? Because I've got to say, I have covered Bitcoin and cryptocurrency probably four or five times on my own podcast at this point. And I, if I were trying to understand what side of the issue I should come down on, to your point, there is bipartisan, uh, there is bipartisan consensus on both sides of the issue. There is a, an age uh, disparity that goes on, but it's hard to find an ideological root. I've talked to people about how there's an interest in cryptocurrencies as a, as a way to um, avoid sanctions and get around kind of the uh, American hegemony in a global context as we're talking about Russia and Ukraine. And there are, are people who are avoiding sanctions for good reasons and for bad reasons, right? There are individual Russians who are obviously able to use some of these alternative currencies to free up assets and get around you know, sanctions that have nothing to do with them. And there's also an argument, depending on how you feel about this politically, that, you know, it's good for various countries, depending on where you fall politically, to be able to avoid kind of the hegemony of, of, of Western economic uh, 
tyranny, but for the average person, you know, does it seem like it, it does seem like we're being sold on something when you have all of these NFTs being pushed by uh, celebrities and night show hosts and all of this stuff? How should normal people think about this? Well, first, I think Bitcoin is much more important for people in the developing world than it is for Americans. Mm. But for Americans, it, this is a store of value asset like gold. That's really what it is. I wouldn't be buying Bitcoin expecting it to 10x. Um, Kathy Wood, uh, for example, is the one who mentioned that she thinks Bitcoin's going to hit a million dollars down the road. She's a legendary investor on Wall Street. But uh, for average Americans, I think they should see Bitcoin specifically as an asset that they can buy and hold for a long period of time um, as part of their portfolio, the way they might hold some bonds and some stocks. As far as the rest of the world goes, um, not only should they not be using Bitcoin to try to get around sanctions, it turns out Bitcoin is eminently traceable and every single mm. transaction on the blockchain is traced forever. But they should be able to look at it as, again, a way to perhaps hold and transfer assets in a way that makes a lot more sense than current banking, uh, banking type transactions today. This is Web 2.0 tech and we've already moved on to Web 3. Mm. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. More rising after this. Hey, Kim, what's on your radar? Please comply with COVID rules. Control your soul's desire for freedom. That is what is being said by this messenger drone above Shanghai. Control your soul's desire for freedom. Is that shocking to you? I think for most of us it is. Yet so many in our own country spouted similar messages during the lockdowns here in America. Maybe you remember all of the people making fun of those of us who were against draconian lockdowns and vaccine mandates. They'd mock us by sending clever tweets like this. Anti-science, backwards thinking, because freedom. Hey, anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers, are you going to refuse protection from nuclear fallout too? You know, because freedom. Dear all anti-vaxxers, because freedom people and Fox News truck convoy fanatics, I beg you, do not get the vaccine. Let Darwin decide. That guy actually won the 2018 Pulitzer Prize in criticism, I kid you not. Do you think these same people are now cheering the drone hovering above the millions in China, telling them to control their soul's desire for freedom? Or do you think they see this and intuitively know something is seriously wrong? People in Shanghai, who, by the way, are not MAGA hat wearing right wing Trump supporters, are realizing something is wrong and they're getting desperate. They're protesting in the streets, demanding the restrictions be lifted. And here they are collectively screaming from their apartments in protest. During the lockdowns here in the United States, when people were losing their jobs, grocery store shelves were empty, and even beaches and playgrounds were being shut down, CNN jumped in to criticize and shame people who protested the measures. Now they seem shocked by China's similar behavior. 
The scale of this lockdown is just staggering. You've got 25 million residents in Shanghai locked in indefinitely. This is in China's most populous and cosmopolitan city. And people there, they're feeling helpless and frustrated. But much of the dissent is being censored. Selena Wang there could have been describing New York City, Los Angeles, or any other major liberal-run city during the spring-summer lockdowns of 2020. People feeling helpless, frustrated, unable to get daily essentials or even medical care, and being censored on social media. So let's face it, parts of the U.S. and certainly Europe weren't that far off from what we're now seeing in China. What's even more alarming is many in this country wished we would have gone further and created quarantine camps for people with or suspected of being infected with COVID. Now, to be clear, China is worse. Some localities have gone a step further. Now, if you're an animal lover, what I'm about to show you is devastating, so be forewarned. Some ultra-authoritarian local authorities in Shanghai have been rounding up COVID-positive people's house pets and murdering them, oftentimes inhumanely. Here they are rounding up those house cats, throwing them in bags where they await their extermination. Dogs are being killed on site, sometimes brutally. This is all in an effort to stop the spread. Now, I have to admit, I've known since the beginning of the pandemic that house pets can carry and transmit COVID to humans. The science was actually always clear on that. However, I decidedly did not report on this out of fear people in this country would take it as far as China and advocate for our furry family members to be euthanized. It seems ludicrous that anyone would advocate for something so monstrous, but nearly everything that once seemed ludicrous, like draconian lockdowns and vaccine mandates, happened. So I didn't put it past people and didn't want to take the risk. Now, fear has caused many to behave in ways that maybe otherwise they wouldn't. It's part of the human condition, no matter what your skin color or nationality is, this pandemic has made that obvious. It's never a good idea to make decisions out of fear. They're rarely good decisions, and they usually lead to giving up freedoms in the name of safety. And who knows when we're getting them back, if ever. Now, to give China some credit, they at least recognize freedom is a desire of the soul and not some made-up MAGA talking point. That's more than we can say for the people in this country who throughout the pandemic politicized freedom and instead of turned it into a dirty word. And where does that leave us? If freedom is just a right-wing talking point rather than a unifying message of what America stands for, how can we possibly hope to maintain it? How can we possibly proclaim ourselves to be a democracy and a free country while mimicking China's very anti-democratic measures? Are the pro-lockdown people watching China now and realizing their massive mistakes and advocating for it? Or do they somehow think it was still justified or maybe even somehow different? That is my big question, Robbie and Brianna, on this one is, you know, China looks pretty darn dystopian and the things that they're doing really, really horrific. I mean, that drone is shouting from the sky, telling people just curb your soul's desire for freedom. Um, that seems really insane. But at, but at the same time, you know, two years ago, it wasn't that much different here in the United States, certainly not different in places like Australia and New Zealand. Uh, I mean, do you think people now are looking back, watching what's happening in China and then saying, people that were very pro-lockdown, do you think they're now saying, okay, maybe that wasn't exactly the best decision? Or do you think they're thinking, no, no, that's different? I mean, it scares me greatly that despite how, I would say, tyrannical and unacceptable the COVID restrictions were in the U.S., and you and I were both very critical of them from an early point, despite how bad they were, 
the U.S.'s restrictions were like in the the least one of the least stringent categories when you compare to places like you've described, like Australia, like what China is doing still at this late date, pursuing a impossible COVID zero strategy or a, a strategy that involves you know losing so many freedoms, so much enjoyment of life that as to not be worth it. And it's it's uh, it's disturbing. But you, you make a very good point that, you know, despite the kind of criticism of that policy we're getting from from mainstream Americans, liberal Americans, they were for maybe not for the some of the excesses, the you know, murdering pets, that kind of thing. But they were saying, you know, you're you're the grim reaper if you're at the beach like that was a common thing two summers ago. Totally wrong, but common thing pushed by our media. Yeah, it feels like there's two things. There was some of the COVID misinformation and overstating of facts, the the Grim Reaper at the beach, um, the misinformation about what was going on with pets. I remember being told very clearly that pets could not transmit COVID in the beginning, but I guess that's Mm -hmm. been revised. All of the masking back and forth and all of that, that has caused a certain degree of skepticism and a lack of confidence in the CDC and the people who are advising us to begin with. That combined with the restrictions on freedoms puts people in a very kind of uh, reactive, you know, d- disgruntled place. But Kim, your your radar raises this other issue for me, which is this push and pull between the idea of positive freedoms and negative freedoms, the freedom to own a gun and also the freedom to be safe from random acts of gun violence. You know, the freedom to, uh, let's say, not have to, from from being hunger, hungry or having to, you know, go without health insurance versus, let's say, you know, whether or not you are forced to pay into a Medicare for all program or something like that. And depending on where you are in your life, people wait and judge and assess something as a positive freedom or a negative freedom and as more important or less important. And it seems to me that the balance here is always trying to figure out how do you make it so that people can make the kinds of choices that enable them to feel safe and happy without feeling like they are forced to make some of those choices. So that when we've looked at the way that COVID was handled in other parts of the world, I would like to be able to incentivize people to limit their exposure to folks, to not go to work with COVID by saying, okay, we're going to give you economic support. We're going to send groceries to your house. We're going to allow you to live in a way that is conducive to health and safety without saying you must do this. You are mandated to do X, Y, and Z. And I wonder what you make of people who are trying to achieve that balancing act in good faith, as opposed to some of those glib uh, kind of mean-spirited tweets that you read during your segment. Yeah, I think that it's important to remember that even countries that are very authoritarian, where I think you and I would absolutely agree there are no freedoms in those countries or they very much are limited. Uh, For example, places like Saudi Arabia, uh, many would say that about China and many of these other places. Those countries would say their, their citizens have freedom. So, you know, they would never say, oh, no, they don't have freedom when we're an authoritarian country. Every leader, every government says, no, our people are free. They have a level of freedom. And it's because they have made those assessments and they've said, "Okay, which level of freedom is acceptable? And they have determined that the level they've given their population is acceptable and anything beyond that is not acceptable. So to them, they are still very much free. So I think it's, you know, uh, that that's where it gets really difficult, right, is is saying, OK, well, at what level would you consider it freedom in a country? Do you consider Saudi Arabia free? They would absolutely say that their people are free, even though they're obviously to me not. Uh, but 
to them. They are Chinese people, exactly the same thing. When you talk to many of them, they'll say, no, we're free. You guys have a misconception about us. And then, you know, you, well, can you, do you have the freedom to browse the internet as right. you wish? Do you have the freedom to say what you want, right? And they don't, but they sit there and they'll tell you, no, we're totally free. You guys have misconceptions. So that is a good question, Brianna. We do have to, as a society, determine what level of freedom is appropriate for being America, what we deem and what we pride ourselves on being a free country. Uh, but I don't know, you know, so well, I, it's a it's a good yeah. discussion. It, it's true. It's certainly true there. I'm sh- there are misconceptions about China that Americans have. There are misconceptions about Saudi Arabia that we have. Although I grew up in Saudi Arabia, and I do remember the National Geographic's being blocked out in the grocery store. I can vouch for those limitations. Well, right, which is why I always push against moral relativism, despite yeah. the U.S.'s considerable flaws and the many criticisms we have of our government and what our government does in places like the Middle East. It, I still feel justified in saying that I am glad we enjoy on the whole, more freedoms than people in a lot of these repressive sure. places, despite, you know, the, I'm sure the North Korean government assuring their people they, they enjoy freedom, the freedom to live free of Western influence or something like that. But no, they clearly have less freedom than we do. It, like, they have a deplorable lack of right. freedom. And it is, like, fine to say that. Like, we just because important. the U.S. government is flawed doesn't prohibit us from taking that view, which is correct. Well, we always have to keep fighting for our freedom, but it's also important to remember that places like, you know, it wasn't just Saudi Arabia or or China or or Australia. I mean, Italy, Spain, you know, they did really strict lockdowns that look a lot like what's going on in China. Mm -hmm. I mean, people were, uh, you know, they like in China, we're seeing videos of people actually repelling their dogs from the windows to try to get them outside to be able to go on little walks outdoors. Mm -hmm. We we saw those same images coming out of Spain and Italy. And they weren't, especially Spain, they weren't allowed to go outside to even walk their dogs. So they were literally repelling them out the balcony. Um, So, you know, I mean, even Western countries that say that they're liberal democracies looked a lot like China during the lockdowns. No, Europe locked down harder than we did, but then they were, they didn't mask kids as aggressively as we did in the U.S. So it's, it's, uh, there is some mixed policies. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, thank you, Kim. And we'll have more rising in just a minute. that's done by members of Congress, the amount of money that they make when they know decisions that are going to be signed and passed, they know laws that are gonna be put into place. They know, like there was one recently that we were talking about Nancy Pelosi and the amount of money she invested in Tesla right before Biden signed this EV bill, electric vehicle bill. It's like like 1.2 million, find out if that's true. They should all have to put their money in trusts while they're in office that are done in in mutual funds, index funds, things that are auto-generated buying and and not individual stocks. Well, insider trading is against the law. Yeah. How is that not insider trading? Right. If you know that someone's going to sign a bill and that bill is going to be a massive boost to the electrical vehicle industry, just as an example... And you know that bill's going to be signed. So right before that bill signed, you buy a f- load of stock in electrical vehicles. And then the next day, or whenever it was, that bill gets passed, and then that stock goes up, and you make a f- ton of money. How is that not illegal? Mm. Well, if you're That's watching this segment, <laughs> we were clearly able to bleep all those words. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. the sentiment 
sentiment stands. The I mean, sentiment the outrage stands. Nancy Pelosi, I, I got to say, I remember a poll from about a year ago. I'm not sure how much it still stands up. But three quarters of Americans thought she should stand step down. She is already a deeply unpopular person. You know, a huge number of Republican attack ads sent to her, despite all the conversation about how it's all AOC's fault and the squad's fault that Democrats have low poll numbers. She has the audacity to publicly bristle at the idea that representatives, elected officials, should not be able to inside, or tr inside trade based on legislative deals that are coming down the pike. And she's still standing. And it's somehow uh, outrageous or a, a news item or anomalous seeming for Joe Rogan to be pointing out this obvious fact. I don't understand it. Yeah, I don't understand how it's not considered insider trading. And the only thing I can think of is because I guess they could make the argument that this is public information. So it's public that the bills are being discussed, that the bills are potentially going to be signed. Like all of that is available to us if we're going to actually go and watch C-SPAN all day and you know peruse through every single bill that, that the House and, and the Senate are, are looking at and these committees and whatnot. So I suppose it's not uh, non-privy information to the public and maybe that's how they get away with it. But you, But then I think, well, but Nancy would know for example, with Nancy, it's plenty other lawmakers. It's not just her by any means. But she would know for sh whether because of private conversations with Biden and his aides and others around him, whether or not he's going to sign it. Right? right. So that would be then sort of insider in it's a way. Actually, but in my view, it's worse than in insider trading like insider trading. It's a very it's a it's a dirty word, but it's still and I guess whatever it should be legal. I'm not sure it should be. It's but it's. In, internal to the to the uh, to the mechanism of the stock market, right? It's people like this is some external. This is the the regulator. This is the 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 entity with the monopoly on the legitimate use of force, the government, which mm -hmm. gets to set the rules, and they have information. So they're outside the system, putting the rules in place for the system. Them having you know secret hidden information is far worse than people inside the system having some kind of information about it, right? I, I, so I would actually, I would more want to have what they're doing be illegal than insider trading. Yeah, Nancy Pelosi is worth, you know, tens and tens of millions of dollars. She's certainly not worth that amount of money because of her, you know, $175,000 a year salary, even having collected it for the last 30 years. You know, you, it, 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 it undermines trust in the institution and Democrats, and Republicans alike should be interested in restoring that very same trust. And even if it was only an optics issue and not a substantive issue, which I don't think it is, I think it's absolutely a substantive issue. I'm inclined to agree with Robbie that there is an added obligation of state actors to not be profiting off of deals in this way, especially because there is an incentive for them to pursue legislation that inures in their own personal benefit as opposed to the benefit of their constituents. Even if it were only an optics issue, though, they should be interested in that optics issue. And it is so disappointing to see someone like Nancy Pelosi not just say privately, oh, I want to try to defend this because I'm earning money, but to have so much hubris that she publicly bristled when asked about this and had to be dragged kicking and screaming into a position where she would actually support a ban on uh, this kind of stock trading. Yeah. And what's even more, I, I think, um, problematic 
uh, you know, again, I suppose everybody has uh, is, is has access to this sort of information and could have bought up the Tesla stock, I suppose. But I think what's even more problematic is when lawmakers are approached by businesses and investors to join in on an investment. You know, you know that investors are thinking, oh, if I could get Nancy Pelosi to be in on this, like that would be great. It would be it would really boost our our credibility and our visibility as a company. And so they get somebody like Nancy or somebody else involved in their company and then now they've got somebody on their team that not only has the visibility and the clout of being a lawmaker, but then they actually are a lawmaker, right? And then they go into Washington and they're starting to maybe, you know, put into bills, different little things here and there that are going to help maybe their personal investments. I think there needs to be more scrutiny and looking at that, the stuff that they're invested in prior to reaching their position and then what they do with that, you know, what, what they, how they then behave as lawmakers and regulators once they're there. Uh, and, and I don't think we see very much of, I don't see, I don't think we have much transparency on that. I mean, I, I would think it's illegal. It should be illegal. If it's not illegal, it needs to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Why isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. Because <laughs> the regulators don't want to regulate themselves. That's exactly. The oldest, That's the <laughs> oldest story there is. All right. Well, tomorrow on Rising, Judd Legum will be here to debate with me. So I did a radar on his discussion of Coke Industries and their nonprofit uh, and and their view on Ukraine that he criticized. So we're gonna we're gonna hash it out. That'll be fun. Wow, yeah. that's kind of interesting. So you're gonna so because I've been seeing this battle out on Twitter that you guys have been having back and forth, back and forth. So he's actually gonna come on and we invited him gonna... to come on, and he wow. apparently said yes. So. You love Good. to see it. Yeah, <laughs> well, then totally. we ha- we're going to have Alincia Johnson and Amy Tar- Tarkanian uh, here for our rising panel, which should also be an exciting time. So don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. You know the drill, guys. Go ahead and do that so that you never miss an episode. And for those of you who love podcasts, here we are. Be sure to check out the podcast. You can take us now on the go wherever you are. Uh, so be sure to check that out. All right, guys. Thanks so much for watching, and we'll see you guys tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.